You're listening to the Christian Civics Podcast, exploring how the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I'm your host, Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. For most of the issues we deal with in government today, things like land use policy and zoning or transportation and infrastructure, public health strategies, consumer protection, international trade, for a lot of these things, even most of these things, we don't have any kind of biblical injunction for how government should respond. The example I like to use sometimes is that the Bible doesn't say anything about which street in your town should get its trash picked up in which order on which day. Uh, a couple of years ago, my wife and I helped a group of neighbors redesign a neighborhood park. We couldn't look to the Bible for specific direction on which material the playground in the park should be made of, or whether it should have monkey bars or slides. Even when there might be clear examples in the Bible about how government can be used to address a specific problem or how we can approach a specific problem in the public square using our powers and freedoms and privileges as citizens, even when the Bible does talk about a problem we're still dealing with today, sometimes it gives a range of examples, a range of strategies God's people used in different times, in different places. Sometimes even a range of strategies they used all at once in the same time and place. Take food insecurity, for example. Joseph collected grain in Egypt and stored it ahead of a coming famine, then sold it back to the population. It would have been too hard for him to use his position as prime minister to make sure that everyone saved as much as they would need to survive the famine. Israel had laws mandating that farmers leave parts of their fields available for gleaning, and they had taxes, tithes, dedicated to providing food for the hungry. We tend to forget that Israel actually had three tithes they were required to make regularly. And when you add tithe on top of tithe on top of tithe, it ended up coming to something like 25% of everyone's income. And on top of all of that, in Egypt, in Babylon, in Persia, in Israel, in Rome, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, there were also calls to sacrificial levels of personal generosity for anyone who called themselves one of God's people. So there are some problems where it seems pretty clear to me the Bible offers us permission to pursue a range of solutions or allows us a lot of leeway to take broad biblical principles and figure out the best way to put them into practice in different situations. Then there are some exceptions. One of the few exceptions to that rule, I think, is criminal justice. Christians have a mandate to try to make the world a fairer, more just place wherever we go, using whatever power God may have seen fit to entrust us with. We have a mandate to make sure that our view of justice pays special attention to the needs of the people who are most likely to be disempowered or forgotten or underrepresented in whatever society we inhabit. And generally, we have a lot of leeway for figuring out what's the best strategy for putting that principle into practice. But we also have a specific, timeless command to visit those in prison. 
Paul tells us expressly to visit people in prison. Jesus tells his apostles and disciples that if they fail to visit prisoners, they're failing to visit him. Our guest this week is Heather Rice Minus. She's Vice President of Government Affairs and Church Mobilization for Prison Fellowship. Prison Fellowship started as part of the Colson Center, and it works to transform the lives of prisoners, to care for their children and families, and to advocate for justice that brings restoration to everyone involved in and impacted by a crime. I wanted to have Heather on to talk about Prison Fellowship's work because they're in a rare spot where some of the work they do is responding in a simple, direct way to simple, direct commands in scripture, to not forget those in prison and visit prisoners. But another part of what they do is taking big, broad themes that we're supposed to dedicate ourselves to and finding specific ways to apply those themes in a complicated, multifaceted system. Whether you agree with the legislation they support, whether you think the training they provide for prison wardens is emphasizing the right problems that they're facing in their careers, you can't argue with the fact that Prison Fellowship is a great example of a collection of Christians humbly trying to figure out the best way to be a practical, visible example of the kingdom that is to come in the middle of the here and now. They don't shy away from engaging with a very hard, very complicated issue just because it has a lot of moving parts. And while they do it, they leave room for people who care about the same questions to still approach those questions from different angles without delegitimizing their faith or delegitimizing the work they might be doing approaching these questions from a different direction. So they're a great example, I think, of taking our responsibilities seriously, while at the same time modeling approach that is humble. We're going to jump right into the conversation with Heather, explaining more about what prison fellowship means by restorative justice. Bear in mind, of course, we're still in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we recorded this about a week ago via Skype, while we were still working on figuring out the best way to record remote interviews. It sounds a little rough, but I think the questions she raises, what is the purpose of the justice system? How do we, as Christians, take our thoughts about crime and punishment captive to the gospel? I think these questions are worth wrestling with, even over a janky-sounding connection. So we're going to jump into our interview with Heather, then we'll come back with some follow-up thoughts and a prayer based on some of the ideas that she brings up. And then I'll give you a heads up about next week. So please stick around through the end. But now here's Heather Rice Minus on what she means when she uses the phrase restorative justice. When we talk about a restorative approach to justice at Prison Fellowship, we really believe that the purpose of the justice system should be restoration for all those involved. And we believe that means the victim, the community that's been harmed, as well as the person who's responsible for crime. That involves having a proportional form of accountability. We also believe it involves constructive corrections culture. We don't believe people should just be warehoused. We believe that they should have an opportunity for transformation. And then lastly, we believe, you know, once someone's debt has been paid, just like, you know, our debt as Christians has been paid, 
made. We believe that people should be able to move on with a, a second chance, a meaningful shot at life where they don't face constant barriers on account of their criminal record. But I think the hardest piece that I have seen for evangelicals, we, we actually have some polling that we've done on Christian perceptions and evangelicals in particular as compared to general Americans on these issues of crime and incarceration and justice. Evangelicals actually score, you know, from our perspective, quite well in a number of areas, including in believing people deserve second chances, in the need to visit those in prison, where it gets a little bit dicey. And I think this is what I, I noticed even before I came to prison fellowship in, in my community is when it comes to what what is proportional punishment or accountability? What should that look like? We're quite okay with throwing the book and making an example out of someone for some reason. <laughs> we have a polling question related to this. We ask, are you okay with giving someone well beyond what their crime deserves for punishment in order to make an example out of someone? About 50% of practicing Christians say they're okay with that. We'd like to see many more people say, I, I disagree. I actually don't think someone should get beyond what they deserve simply to, to make an example out of someone. What are some of the arguments in favor of that? Obviously, working with Prison Fellowship, you're very much on the restorative justice side of this. But as you've talked to people who aren't convinced about that approach, what are some of the things you hear from them? I think of two main arguments that I hear from folks who take a different perspective. I remember once I was in a member of Congress's office talking to their staff and, you know, office that we knew is very vocally opposed to some of the reforms we were putting out. And I just said, you know, can, can you explain more of your perspective? Well, how do you approach the justice system? What's the purpose of justice? And, you know, it took about a minute to think about it and took a short pause and just said, incapacitation. Incapacitation is the purpose of the justice system. And so I think that is, you know, how some people look at it. You know, there are folks who we view as unsafe and perhaps losing sight of the fact that anyone is redeemable, I, I think is, is part of that. And so therefore, we need to keep them um, locked away on end for as long as we possibly can. Uh, so by incapacitation, you mean not necessarily repaying a debt, not necessarily the satisfaction of the victims, but more just keeping someone unable to commit the same offense again. Is that um, a fair description yeah. of what that person maybe meant? I think so. I think that's a piece of it. And then I think the other piece, which I understand a bit more, is a deterrence factor. If we make an example out of someone, does that mean more people will see the United States government, state government or federal government took this seriously? Look what that person got. Now I'm going to stay out of out of that. Um, what we have seen, though, more so from the data that's come back over time on criminal justice is that most of the players who have criminal behavior are not carefully adding up, you know, how many years someone got and so forth. It's a lot um, more out of life circumstances and, and associations that they're acting, and there is not as much evidence um, that sentencing has a deterrent effect as I think people um, want to believe. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? I can see how making the punishment for a crime so severe that people are actively afraid of it seems like it should work. But can you talk a little bit about the incentive structures that override that fear? There's some great research out there. You know, I'd point to um, our colleagues at Pew who do a lot of research in this space and monitor incarceration and then crime rates over time. We also at Prison Fellowship have cited to some of this and other research and a resource we have. If you go to www.justicedeclaration.org, 
you can uh, see that there's a white paper we have there that is a call on the church to a more restorative approach to crime and justice. And we go through a number of the arguments and statistics related to this. To your question about, you know, what what's a stronger factor or influence on people. I was just actually today talking to someone who's home from prison for about a year and got a little bit of his story. He's been in, he was in prison per, for 10 years. But before that, he was involved in, in a gang. And I think for a lot of people in some types of crime, there there's a sense of belonging, particularly when there is gang involvement that maybe they're missing from elsewhere in their community. And so that can be a driving factor, as well as I think economic um, reasons as well. Just ability to make fast and easy money. I've had a nephew who's been incarcerated and I can remember when he came home and just the struggle of like, I was making a lot of fast, easy money and I felt good at what I was doing and now I have to take a minimum wage job and, and work my way up and I'm, I feel like I'm starting all over again. I think those are some of the things that pull at people. I think it's probably 12 years ago now, I was reading an article on sex offender legislation. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the municipal level and on the state level, sex offenders are such an easy topic to talk about and to campaign on that in many communities, people have been elected and reelected on platforms of increasing the radius around schools in which sex offenders aren't allowed to live. And so that there are actually towns and entire counties where effectively there is nowhere anyone who has ever been convicted of a sex offense could live. And the accidental result has been roving caravans of homeless sex offenders throughout communities, some of whom were violent, some of whom were 18-year-olds with 16-year-old girlfriends whose parents didn't like them. Do we see that dynamic play out when it comes to people who are incarcerated or returning citizens in political rhetoric as well? How do you feel about how you see the people you minister to portrayed in political debates? Mm. Yes, I'm overall encouraged in the movement I see in this space, whether it's looking back at the Willie Horton ad, right? But what's interesting is that the narrative has started to change in, I would say, at least the past 10 years. That's because we have reached a point in which Americans know we are not solving the problem. We are over-incarcerating. An estimated one in three Americans has a criminal record. An estimated one in two Americans has a family member who's been impacted um, by incarceration. Because of that, I think people are, are starting to say, similar to other movements, like, I know someone <laughs> who, who is this person, you know, you're talking about in, in this ad, and, and I, I know their character, and, and that's not who they are, and it's not as simple as you're making it out to be. And I think that that's had a real effect in terms of the reforms that have been able to happen at the state and federal level, in terms of sentencing reforms and prison reform and opportunities for people post-release. I also think it's had an effect on the movement and who is part of the movement for justice reform. Tons of my colleagues now are formerly incarcerated leaders within their organizations. The president has multiple times featured formerly incarcerated people, including, you know, Matthew Charles, Alice Marie Johnson, who's a a clemency recipient of his at public events and given them a platform to speak. And they're amazing people and they're contributing to their communities, their grandmothers, their fathers, their entrepreneurs. And I think that that narrative is really starting to catch on. And it's part of why Prison Fellowship has, has launched this campaign called Second Chance Month in April, where we celebrate those stories, but still call out all the barriers that exist for people with a criminal record that we need to overcome still. Can you talk a little bit about 
from your experience, how either our criminal justice system or how citizens in general who are not incarcerated and have not been incarcerated react differently to white-collar crime versus Mm -hmm. drug-related crimes or violent crimes? Yeah, so I think... That one is really interesting because even with even with navigating some federal legislation, we passed the First Step Act. Um, the First Step Act provides uh, an opportunity for people who are testing as low risk of recidivating, recidivating um, or committing a new crime, gives them the opportunity to earn time credits towards moving to pre-release custody. So, so essentially being able to move to home confinement or community corrections earlier, only those who are testing as low risk. And, and there were a number of, of types of crimes that made this list of exceptions that even if you were testing as low risk, if you committed this crime, you are not going to get to earn the time credits. Among those from certain political factions came white collar crime. And among other political factions came some of the more violent um, type crimes. And so there's almost uh, this interesting debate in the political sphere of like how, how hard we should, you know, nail those who have committed white collar crimes, even though there's a call by the same folks for, you know, less use of incarceration for other nonviolent crime. <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, it's, it's a struggle because they, people who um, commit, you know, really large scale white collar crimes, you know, it causes incredibly serious harm to communities. But it's not, quote, unquote, violent, right? And so how do you make amends for that? And in America, we have such a default position that it, that punishment equals incarceration, right? We don't have much by way of actually bringing together those who have been harmed in the communities with a person who's responsible and saying, you know, how can this person begin to make amends? What should that look like? And to you specifically, what I would call, you know, a restorative justice program. There's very few of them available in the United States, more so in the youth space and, and certainly very few and limited cases in, in the violent crime space. But there's a lot of evidence showing there's so much more victim satisfaction in a process like that as opposed to just locking someone away. And so when we want to ask ourselves, going back to the question of what's the, the purpose of the justice system, right, if we really do believe the purpose is restoration, which, by the way, our polling shows that Americans, you know, do believe that, you know, major, vast majority, over 90 percent of Americans believe that the purpose should be restoration. But the means we employ to hold people accountable don't necessarily lead to that and oftentimes leave victims on the side in terms of really being able to get something out of the system that makes them feel like they're moving on a journey of, of healing. There's something you buried in the middle there that I think is worth letting breathe a little bit and calling out again. You just said your studies show that there's more victim satisfaction when a restorative model of justice is what's applied. That maybe goes against what my gut instinct would have meant. I would have thought that for a victim who has been harmed, there's more satisfaction seeing something more punitive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's an in, very interesting, and I, I wish there was more education on this. There's a great study um, a few years back on this by the Americans for Safety and Justice mm-hmm. on victim um, satisfaction with more restorative processes. In some ways, it's surprising, because I think, you know, when we think of someone seriously harming us or someone in our family, we think of anger, and rightfully so, right? And we think of wanting to throw the book at someone. And I think for every person, it's different, right? And it's a process. And there is a a journey for every victim of crime, especially, you know, when we're thinking about very um, serious crime. But I, I think why I'm somewhat not surprised about the outcomes of these studies is because you don't get to have that much agency as a victim in 
the criminal justice system. You have limited options of what you can, you know, have that person, how that person is held accountable because we think of incarceration. It's not customized to you. It's not customized to what your needs are as a victim. And so I think the restorative process can give an opportunity for asking more questions, creating more of a dialogue for why did you do this to me? What was your thinking? Um, getting some of that conversation that you, you may not otherwise get through the traditional process. And it can also set up an opportunity for the victim of crime to have m- more of a uh, voice in saying what would make things right. And so there's a lot more examples of restorative justice programs in other countries than the United States that are finding this as well. Some of our affiliates at Prison Fellowship um, in other countries have a program called Sycamore Tree that engages more um, along these lines. And I think what you find is that people get more of the answers that they need and can feel more security along those lines in moving forward with their lives. And sometimes what someone wants out of this is to see a light at the end of the tunnel for this person on the other end. You did this terrible thing, but you know what? You know how you can pay it back. Some people may feel like I, I want you to sit and rot, right, um, for a long time or forever um, in a cell. But some people may feel like, you know what, how you can make it back to me is I want you to go out and get an education. I want you to be a good parent. I want you to live a life um, that you otherwise wouldn't have led in light of what you've done to my life. And so we do see, you know, victims of crime step up and, and say that that's what they want out of that person in many cases. And I'd like you to be a better parent. I'd like you to go to school. I'd like you to have a steady job as some of the things that they want to see. It's also really encouraging to me to hear that that crosses national boundaries. That's not just something that's unique about the way the U.S. encultures us to think. Hearing that in other countries, there's also higher satisfaction with restorative processes, because that almost seems to me like a validation of the fact that God's image is imprinted on us. I mean, the mm-hmm. whole model of the gospel is God entering into a sacrificial, restorative relationship with people who have committed injustice against him. I have a good friend who's not a Christian, and he and I, maybe a year ago, were talking about politics. I mean, we talk about politics a lot, but he said that really to him, the ultimate victory is not going to be beating his political opponents. It would be winning them over to be his allies. And I wanted to shake him and say, like, how do you not see how you've just articulated the central dynamic of the Christian life? God not beating us when we became his enemies, but going to great lengths to win us back to him. Fair enough. Yeah, I think those kinds of conversations are pretty common these days in the political climate we live in and the divisiveness. And yeah, I think they contribute actually to what I see in the justice. Like, I think actually, you know, criminal justice tends to be one of the few issues where people from both sides of the aisle can, can you know, sing off the same song sheet in many ways. Um, they may be coming at it for, for different rationale and they may have, you know, certain parameters of where they, they will or won't go. But it's one of the, the few places we can find consensus. But I do find that it is in this day and age so hard to... Um, have a conversation where about issues where you disagree, right? And to have a cordial conversation about that and, and to be winsome. People are very much, I think, in their echo chambers, which is makes it difficult. Circling back to something else you said, you said that the punitive model of justice is much more common in the U.S. We tend to think of 
prison as punishment or when we think of a crime we think punishment equals prison right where did that equivalency come from why is the restorative model why does it have less purchase in the american psyche than it does in other countries we have an interesting history in this country. Um, we talk about this in um, a book I've co-authored with my colleagues um, called Outrageous Justice. But uh, if you look at American history, actually the Christian community really contributed to quite a bit of our notion of prison because actually it was the Christian community who, who set up the first prison and kind of solitary cells in Pennsylvania. Their thought process, they, they called it the penitentiary, I and mean, it was a place you sent to make people penitent. That's kind of where inmate numbers actually came from. They didn't want people to be identified, so they didn't want to have to have people carry that identity with them once they were done with their punishment. But they wanted people to come live in a solitary cell, have a lot of silence, not much interaction with others, and just spend time in prayer becoming penitent. Well, we know now that there's a lot of, you know, very severe psychological ramifications to leaving someone, you know, with too much solitude. And we continue to deal with that issue today in our the use of solitary confinement. And a lot of corrections officials have really stepped up and, and begun the process of, of limiting or eliminating that in their facilities. But we actually contributed to, the, to this as the Christian community, thinking it was a way to help and, and bring about re- repentance and redemption. And then when the person walked out, they would regain their name and, and go on and live with, with their lives. And I think we've had so many unintended consequences to the structures we built. It sounds almost like we forgot that while it is important to regularly go into your private room for prayer, it's also not good for man to be alone. Forever, right. <laughs> right, right uh, like we are creatures that are designed and meant for community. And exactly. It, yeah, it seems like any real healing and anything that is broken about our humanity that we are trying to heal in a focused way will require interaction with other people. Right, right, exactly. I also just think about the the 1994 crime bill, really incentivizing states to increase the sentence length for various crimes to fund the building of prisons. And a lot of the prisons that have been built since the passage of that law are in communities that don't have many other economic options. And, And oftentimes far away from where the people committing crimes, families live, but then this community that has the prison in it, that's one of the only forms of, of economic mm-hmm. um, opportunity. It sounds like a real almost perverse incentive. Yes. Yeah. Obviously, we're recording this over Skype, not in person because of the COVID-19 outbreak. I'd be remiss to not ask, how are the people you serve and the people who work with you and for you being affected by the COVID-19 outbreak? We have been working around the clock since this really came to, to national attention and trying to respond because prisons, a place that are constantly having entry and exit, right, um, of, of folks coming in, staff coming in, new people being incarcerated, transfers. There are also places where it's difficult to keep sanitary and where there's, you know, limited resources in terms of sanitation and healthcare and all of those things. And so there, there are places of extreme concern. And we have already seen, especially in jails, you know, starting uh, to crop up more cases of coronavirus in correctional facilities. We have been really, really impressed so far of a lot of corrections leaders stepping up and being transparent about, you know, how their policies and plans are changing in the prisons. A lot of prisons are no no longer allowing visitation and programs are being limited or not allowed at all. There's a lot of concern in terms of making sure that we have enough resources for sanitation and healthcare and things like that. So that's in the immediate how it's affecting those inside. 
for our staff that regularly go inside, certain staff we have, those who, who work in what we call our Prison Fellowship Academy, which is our most intensive program, some are still able to go in because they're considered, you know, essential correction staff running our program on a day-to-day basis. Other staff we have who, who are more engaged in, in training volunteers to go inside are now no longer with the ability to go in. And so trying to keep spirits up, um, trying to keep correspondence with those who are inside to, you know, remain calm and to give them hope. A lot of what we do is still being able to continue even through remote work. We're continuing to, to reach out to church partners. One of the things we're doing is trying to get more Bibles into prison, especially during this time. We think it's especially important to, to give the Word of God into prisons, and so that's something we're calling on our supporters to help us with. For, for the area of work that I oversee advocating for justice reform, we're doing a lot of work um, around the clock to, to talk to federal and state lawmakers about how to respond to this, justice reform measures that should be considered, things like opportunities for compassionate release for those who are sick in prisons to be able to go home and be in a safer and more comforting environment. Also opportunities to think about things we already call for, like not holding people in pretrial detention who don't need to be there because they're not a threat to public safety. So it's been an opportunity to to say now more than ever, (laughs) these reforms are necessary to help keep communities safe. How has working with this ministry changed you? How is the shape and practice of your faith different, your relationship with Christ different because of the work you've gotten to put your hand to? Uh, It shaped me a lot, Rick. A few, I want to say it was maybe two years or three years into working at Prison Fellowship, my nephew, my adult nephew, Uh, became incarcerated. And him and I actually didn't get along that well. I kind of saw where he was heading in his journey and and sort of called him out on it, which he didn't appreciate. He also told, he told my husband at the time, you know, the only respect I give to Auntie Heather is out of respect for you. Um, But I just felt the Lord calling me, even though we um, weren't on good terms, to, to start writing him. Because I thought, you know, I work for Prison Fellowship. My family member is incarcerated. I should start writing him. And so I did. And I, I, I felt like, Lord, I don't know what to say, but I just, I started putting some some pen to paper. And in prison, especially now in light of the coronavirus, I, I just think of um, how important it is for those family connections or opportunities for communication. Because time kind of stands still. You don't get to see the outside world. And so mail means a lot to people in prison. So I started writing my nephew, and he would write me back, and we were just able to build, you know, more of a relationship and understanding of each other. And I actually started sharing about some of my work at Prison Fellowship and how we have this restorative approach. I ended up sharing a bit about, you know, how my house had been broken into when I lived abroad and how, you know, that still impacts me today. Like, you know, at hotels, I'll sleep with the light on kind of thing. And he wrote me back like, you know, I never thought about that because he was involved in property crime. And I, I don't think about the people I'm impacting because, you know, I don't see their faces. I felt like God prepared me for that time because I was at Prison Fellowship. And it's just given me so much more um, of a picture into how God redeems and has the power to redeem everyone. The scope of God's grace is just so broad. You know, I've met so many people who have made some really, really horrific choices in their life, and they've had a total transformation. You know, you go to a Prison Fellowship Academy, you you will be amazed just to see how how grateful people are for God's grace. The community that is built inside prison is like no other. People really understand the gravity of their sin, and they understand the vastness of God's love in a way that you just 
don't often see in the outside world. I actually love, I love visiting prison. I, I, I know that I get to come home. And so do not want to take, you know, make light of that for those who are there. But I, I love visiting prison because I'm going to see our Prison Fellowship Academy participants who are just incredible men and women on this journey of really having so much transparency and integrity and building one another up. And so that's given me a whole new outlook on, on my faith. I remember early on, um, I think on my second campaign, I had to build a field team really quickly for one town. And one of the people I hired was, I think he'd only been in town for a week or two. And this was his first job. And it turned out he was homeless. And I got a call from him one night because he had been arrested for breaking into someone's RV so that he had a place to sleep for the night. And I, I mean, I was 20. 23 years old, I should not have had the amount of responsibility on the campaign that I had, let alone the amount of responsibility over another human being's life. And it seemed like too much of a headache for me to get involved. I was also afraid about stigmatizing the candidate for intervening in this situation. And I think about it very frequently, how badly I sinned against this person by essentially abandoning him in a way that we are expressly told not to but if i have to be honest a big part of that was also just stigma fear of catching transgressiveness like a disease or being stained by association with someone who had been in jail or had been arrested so for my own edification how have you seen people repent of that get over that is there a recipe for growing past that and learning to not commit that same sin against people again Mm, that's a great question and i think the truth of the matter is you think of this one person etched in your brain given the nature of, of the situation but there are estimated one in three Americans with a criminal record. That means they're in everybody's pews. That means they're you, <laughs> if you're listening to this, or they are your brother or your cousin or your friend. I would venture to say, you know, we all have someone in our lives who's who's gotten a DUI or, you know, a drug charge or theft or, or something along those lines and even more serious crimes. But the reality is the scope of incarceration in our country is so large that there is someone in your pew and in your community, maybe in your home, who has a criminal record. So I think like this stigmatizing part of how we we have a recipe for moving forward on that, I believe, is to have more of an awareness of how big the scope of the problem is, but then also to realize the character of those folks and the transformation of those who have a criminal record. And that's why Prison Fellowship launched Second Chance Month. We celebrate it every April. We're doing a lot virtually this year <laughs> because of uh, coronavirus. But, you know, now more than ever, we need to raise awareness about the needs that people have, like like this um, gentleman you mentioned to who didn't have housing. A lot of people coming out of the criminal justice system struggle with housing and employment with coronavirus. We expect that that will only be amplified for those coming home right now. And what we want to do is share this, the positive stories. There's so many countless stories of people who have done tremendous things with their second chance. And I, I think another recipe to that for, for us in the Christian community is to think of the second chance we've all been given in Christ, right? And if God has been able to forgive all of us for the worst thing we've ever done, it's incumbent on those of us um, in the Christian community to extend that same grace, if not I, I would go so far to say, you know, it's really justice to allow someone to live out a meaningful second chance. Because when we hold people back and we almost apply this 
scarlet letter of F for felon now, where you're going to forever carry your criminal record with you. It's going to prevent you from getting certain jobs or access to education assistance, access to housing. It's going to carry this general stigma even in our pews. When we when we do that, we don't let people live to their God-given potential, and we actually don't honor the fact that they have met the requirements for their sentence and that they have paid the debt that they were told they owed. I certainly do not want to be judged by the worst choice I've made in my life. And I think that, likewise, we should not place this permanent, negative, and unending identity on those who um, have returned to our communities and have a criminal record. All right. That was my interview with Heather Rice Minus, Vice President of Government Affairs and Church Mobilization for Prison Fellowship. One of the things I enjoyed most about my conversation with Heather is something she mentioned at the very top. I asked her what people who disagree with her might think about the same question she was answering. And she was actually able to give me a couple different credible answers. She wasn't guessing. She wasn't belittling them. She even had specific stories about asking people what they think and why they think it. Asking them face to face and then shared their answers with me in words they would probably be comfortable using themselves. This is incredibly important for us to do. As Christians, we're called to honor the image of God in those around us, regardless of whether we like them or not. And as people who are called to follow in the footsteps of the great mediator, people who are supported by the power of the divine counselor, people who are told that we are set free by a commitment to truth, Learning to listen to people on the other side of major divides, people who were predisposed to thinking of as wrong or misguided, and actually practicing sympathy and empathy with them, actually endeavoring to describe them in terms they would say are accurate and respond to what they're actually saying and thinking and feeling and not what we assume they must be thinking or feeling. That's an incredibly powerful act of witness. It's not the way most political debate, it's not the way most conversation about government happens right now. I've said this before, but our advisory council chair, Ben O'Dell, said to me once, if I can't understand where my political opponents are coming from, then as a Christian, that's a me problem, not a them problem. Now, before we close out, I'm going to hand this off to Christian Civics team member, Reverend Charles Drew, to lead us in prayer off of the interview we just heard. Our loving creator, you are the God who binds up the brokenhearted, who proclaims liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. We thank you for the expression of that love that we find in the work of prison fellowship not only in our own country, but also around the world. We praise you for the vision for comprehensive restoration that drives Prison Fellowship's work among victims, communities, and offenders. We praise you for Prison Fellowship's hands-on ministry in prisons, for its teaching, its gospel preaching, its vocational training. And we praise you for the many people with criminal records and incarceration experiences who have stepped up to tell their stories to inmates and to the broader world with transformative results. 
We thank you, Father, for the contribution that Prison Fellowship has been able to make to the growing conviction in policymakers and in Americans generally that mass incarceration brings little change for the better, that change comes rather as our practices recognize that people with criminal records share a common humanity with the rest of us. Thank you, Lord, for the thoughtful attention to details and outcomes that has helped make the case for practices that effectively advance what we know to be true about human nature and the gospel of healing and restoration. And we praise you for the opportunities for cooperative work across the aisle that Prison Fellowship has helped generate in our divided time. And so, Lord, with thanks in our hearts, we want to pray for Prison Fellowship We pray for continuing wise policies and practices that bring about comprehensive change and healing in our country and across the world. We pray for continuing flexibility and wisdom in implementing and adjusting existing programs. We pray, Lord, for wise and effective interaction with public officials so that consensus on reform will keep growing across the aisle and keep making things better in our country in the prison system and all of its um, efforts um, beyond the prison itself. We pray, Lord, for the gospel to be vivid, not only through what prison fellowship proclaims, but also through what prison fellowship advocates and implements programmatically. We pray, Father, for housing and work and community for people re-entering public life from prison, and for churches for the wisdom and the energy to step up and to help. We pray, Father, for practices that protect prison inmates and prison workers of all sorts from the coronavirus and its effects. And we pray, Lord, finally, for the faith and the hope and the love that will give fresh daily energy to Prison Fellowship staff and volunteers as they press on in their work. We pray all of these things, our Father, in the name of Jesus, who came to free us all from sin and from sickness and from oppression. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Pastor Drew. If you want to learn more about Prison Fellowship, visit our website, christiancivics.org. We'll have links to a few of the resources Heather mentioned in our interview. There will be links where you can get your free copy of the Study Guide for Outrageous Justice, which is a book she mentioned co-authoring with some of her colleagues. We'll also have a link to the Justice Declaration she mentioned, some of the research that she brought up over the course of the interview, and we'll have a link where you can learn more about the digital events they're holding as part of Second Chance Month, which is running all through April. Thanks for listening. We actually have several episodes coming out next week, so be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you're listening to this now. That's probably the place to subscribe to make sure you don't miss anything we have coming out next week. Until then, I'm Rick Barry, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Christian Civics. And thank you for joining us as we explore ways in which the gospel empowers us to think, speak, and act differently in the public square. I can't wait to join you again next week.